Hope you've had a chance to say hello to your neighbor. Uh, but this morning, uh, we're going to dive right in and uh, get moving through um, get moving through some verses in the, in the book of Micah. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Uh, they might be on the screen, uh, but I'm going to read them for us as well. And if you have your Bibles, please feel free to follow along. This is God's word. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrians, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this very famous passage from the book of Micah. God, I know that we're used to hearing at Christmas. But God, thank you that this morning we get to just take a moment And move through the book of Micah to see where this promise comes from, the hope that it offers, and how it changes everything. And so God, I pray that over the next few minutes as we talk through your word, that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel. Holy Father, that Christ would be lifted high and that we would be drawn to you. God, we ask this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. You ever been in a situation that felt like catastrophe? Like maybe a situation that you've pushed yourself in where things are really messed up and you're not real sure how it's ever going to be made right, how you're going to get out of this situation. A situation where it seems like there is no redemption and things are just going from bad to worse. If you've been around redemption for a while, you've probably heard me tell this story, but I'm going to tell it again. Um, When Amy and I first started dating, uh, I was 16. We started dating um, in high school, but around the time we first started dating, I was going through what you might call my cowboy phase. So there was a little bit of identity stuff going on and uh, wore cowboy boots, drove an old truck, thought I was a cowboy. And... uh, Grew up in this little town outside of Augusta called Modoc, and uh, one Sunday morning I had gone to Modoc Baptist Church, and uh, I got there and pulled up in the parking lot, and um, this is going to surprise you, but behind Modoc Church was this big pasture where there were goats and things like that because it's out in the country, right? And so uh, I had pulled up in the parking lot, and uh, and I got out of my truck, and there was a giant goat, a giant billy goat in the parking lot. And uh, this is no joke. There were a bunch of people that were in the fellowship hall of the church, which, which was sort of across a breezeway from the main part of the church. 
because they couldn't get out because the goat was there terrorizing everybody. And so when I pulled up in the parking lot, um, there was a lady behind this big oak tree, and the goat and the lady were, like, going around the oak tree like this, right? And the goat was trying to get to the lady, and there was actually a lady on the ground hiding under her car uh, from the goat. And so I was a cowboy, and so I was going to handle this situation, right? So I go to my truck, I get behind the, um, you know, the seat of my truck, and I have a rope. And so I decided I was going to make a lasso and lasso the goat. Now, I had never made a lasso before, (laughs) and I had never lassoed anything, but I decided I was going to do this, right? So I made a lasso, and I just walked up to the goat, and the goat was standing about as close as, as Ben is here, and, uh, and I took the rope, and I threw it at him, right? And uh, the knot hit the goat, like, right in the face, and uh, obviously I didn't lasso him. And uh, the goat got really mad, like, really mad. And so the goat charged at me, but before he did that, he stood up on his hind legs like a stallion, and... Um, his front feet were going like this, and then he leapt as hard as he could at me, and so I started running, and um, everybody's in the fellowship hall watching, <laughs> right, and so I'm running through the cemetery around, literally, running around graves, running around bushes, and I finally realized somebody in the fellowship hall is holding the door open, so I run into the fellowship hall as fast as I can, and in my mind, I'm still a hero, Right? And I walk in, and everybody is dying laughing. Like, that is the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. And um, so a little bit of time goes by, and we're trying to figure out what to do about this goat. And so I, I finally take off across the um, breezeway, run to the church, get on the phone. This was back before cell phones, right? Call the guy that the goat belonged to and said, hey, your goat is down here terrorizing everyone. And so he sends his son down to get the goat. Right, And so his son comes down the hill. He's wearing shorts, no shoes, no shirt. Uh, he walks up to the goat. The goat rears up on its back legs. And his son grabs the goat by the horns, turns his head sideways, and punches the goat as hard as he can. <laughs> and, and then he drags the goat back up the hill. Right, So not only did I look foolish to everyone, right? this guy's son showed me up and punched the goat out. Right? <laughs> So the goat defeated me, everybody was laughing at me, somebody else got all the glory, right? And, I, and the worst part is I didn't feel like a cowboy anymore after all this happened, right? <laughs> anyway, bad to worse, right? That's the way that Micah feels to me when you start to read through the book of Micah. The situation is going from bad to worse. It's almost like there's... There's situations or there are verses and passages where there seems to be no hope. And then all of a sudden it flips and Micah is granting such hope that it's kind of overwhelming. It's a, it's a back and forth thing. And we talked about that last week as it relates to chapters 1 and 2. right? But chapters 3 and 5 are the same way. There's like this promise of doom and judgment and then there's hope. And doom and judgment and hope. The beginning of chapter 5 that we just read is probably the most famous and well-known verses from the book of Micah. But those, those verses are all about the hope that God is promising to his people, even in the midst of certain judgment and certain doom. Right. So let's recap how we get to chapter 5 really quick, or 
uh, maybe not really quick, but just over a few minutes. Let's recap how we got to chapter 5. Micah comes on the scene sometime around 735 B.C., maybe a little bit afterwards. And uh, Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah and uh, a few other prophets as well. And part of what Micah has said in this book is the same thing that other prophets were saying as well. That the Assyrians are going to take the northern kingdom, Samaria, into exile. And Micah actually sees that happen in 722 B.C. when he's still a prophet. Part of what Micah is saying in this book is that the Babylonians will eventually take the southern kingdom of Judah into exile. And that happens long after Micah is off the scene. But Micah says, hey, that's going to happen in another 120 years or so. And so Micah is on the scene announcing doom and judgment. But it's doom and judgment that Judah and that Israel have brought on themselves. We, we saw this last week in Micah chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Right? God's judgment is ultimately because of their idolatry. And this is what we read last week, just real quick. Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Right, so in chapter 1, right off the bat, we see that God is not indifferent to the idolatry of a people that call themselves by His name. Not because God needs their worship in order to be God, but because God created the world and all people and His people to worship Him and to find ultimate fulfillment in Him. And their worship of idols caused them to become grotesque and less than human. And their idolatry led to injustice, which is what chapter 2 is all about. The idolatry, I mean the injustice that chapter 1 led to. And so in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Micah puts his finger right on the injustice that originated from that idolatry. And it says this, They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. Right, so Micah says they're coveting, they're oppressing, they're seizing things that do not belong to them, and they are proud. And ultimately, like I said, that, that originated ultimately from their idolatry and their worship of something other than God. Micah 3, which we did not look at last week, but this is what Micah 3 is ultimately about is that Micah goes on to talk about how this injustice has corrupted the leaders and the priests and the prophets of God's people. Micah 3, 9 through 12 says this, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its Prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house 
a wooded heights. And so chapter 3 is all about how the rulers of Israel have perverted justice, how they have um, loved injustice, how they have practiced iniquity, how they have shed blood, and how they take bribes, and how they are completely falling down on the job as to what God would expect from them. Right? Priests teach for money. Prophets tell you what you want to hear if you will pay them for their words. And because of this, Micah again promises destruction. Samaria will become a heap of ruins. Jerusalem will to go into exile into Babylon. Right? Micah was long since gone when Jerusalem fell. I mentioned that a minute ago, but he did see Samaria reap the consequences of their idolatry, their covetousness, their perverted justice, and ultimately he predicts the same for Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. And then Micah 4 takes a turn. Micah 4 takes a turn and we start to hear about a time of future peace. We, we start to hear about a time when things will be different than they are now in the context of this book and so God's people are still going into exile they will still reap God's justice in response to their idolatry and injustice but it takes a turn Micah 4:10 says this writhe and groan O daughter of Zion like a woman in labor for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country you shall go to Babylon there you shall be rescued there the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So, right, there's this promise of exile, but there's this glimpse of hope that even in your exile, even in your judgment and discipline, God's redemption will be there. There's a glimpse of hope. There's hope for peace. Earlier in Micah 4, it even says this, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Right? There's, a, there's, there's this beginning of this promise of peace and hope that comes with the Messiah. And we start to see that in chapter 4. Micah 4 ends with God telling his people that right now many nations are gathered against you. They are mocking you and ridiculing you and laughing at you, but they don't know what I, the Lord, have planned for you. They don't know the plans of the Lord. They don't know that I plan to redeem you, to rescue you, to give you a, a, a redeemer who can never be defeated. That's how Micah 4 ends. And in just a moment, we'll jump into chapter 5. Like I said, the most famous part of Micah but I want to make sure that we get the historical context for chapter 5 as well. And as much as we've got the um, sort of the context of everything else that's going on in Micah, let's make sure we understand the historical context for Micah 5, right? This book began, if you remember back in Micah 1.1, 1, 1, with Micah, uh, with telling us that Micah was active and a prophet during the reign of three different kings in the southern kingdom, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Right, all, all who were kings, like I said, in the southern kingdom. And specifically, Micah chapters 3 through 5 were probably oracles or sermons that Micah preached to King Hezekiah sometime around 701 B.C. And, and we know that because of 
Micah 5, 1 talks about a siege, which is probably the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians that, that I'll talk about in a second. So we're not exactly sure when chapter 5 was written, but it's probably based around this siege. And the prophet Jeremiah, who lived long after Micah, actually says in the 26th chapter of his book, you can look it up, um, that Micah, some of the things that you read in Micah chapter 3 and 4, those are the things that were preached to King Hezekiah. So like there's a biblical reference saying um, that this is what's going on as well. Chapter 5-1 references the siege directly when it says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. Right? And the siege of Jerusalem, if you want to know more about it, like there's a historical record from the Assyrian side as well that you can actually look up. But in God's word, um, you can find out more about the siege in 2 Kings 18 and 19 and 2 Chronicles 32 and Isaiah 22 all references the siege. But essentially, the Assyrian army is surrounding Jerusalem. King Hezekiah, who Micah has been preaching to, along with Isaiah and some others, has paid the Assyrian king Sennacherib a tribute to keep him away. And the Assyrian king continues his siege despite the fact that King Hezekiah has tried to pay him off. And ultimately, they've surrounded Jerusalem. It looks like all hope is lost. And then God ends up miraculously delivering his people from this siege through the work of an angel. And so Jerusalem ends up not falling to the Assyrians like Samaria did about 20 years earlier. Right? So in the book of Micah, God is promising judgment on Judah for their idolatry and injustice. And yet, as the Assyrians come in to lay waste to Jerusalem, God still delivers them. In the midst of a message about judgment and justice, God still delivers them, right? He delivers them not by their own efforts, but by his efforts. They didn't overcome the Assyrians. God did. And in a moment when it seemed like there was no hope, right, Micah and Isaiah are predicting terrible things for Jerusalem and Judah. And yet God still shows up in the midst of that. And circumstances change, and God delivers them. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, right, considered it uh, a travesty or a pity that the English language possessed a word like catastrophe, but did not possess its opposite. And so Tolkien coined this term called eucatastrophe to sort of fill that role that was lacking. And what he meant by this, is that he meant eucatastrophe to be a sudden turn of miraculous grace in a story that avoids the catastrophe, that avoids utter doom and destruction. And that's sort of what happens here as Micah is uttering these words about a future Savior and Messiah in chapter 5. Right? If you read the Lord of the Rings books, if you're familiar with them, it's all through the books. You see it in the movie that just when you think all hope is lost, when it looks like there is no escape, there's a sudden, unexpected deliverance. In more recent pop culture, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking more about the character Eleven from Stranger Things, 
right? If 11 is not part of the story, if 11 is not there, then things go in a different direction for her friends, right? And, and in Micah's day, God delivers Jerusalem from the Assyrians when it looks like all hope is lost. There's already a mus- message of doom and destruction, and God delivers them. And even in the midst of that deliverance, Micah is still reminding them that they will be judged through the hands of the Babylonians, right? And it's in the middle of this time of coming judgment and miraculous delivery that Micah proclaims the words of chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It's in the middle of some really bad times and really uh, awful circumstances that God delivers his people temporarily from their greatest enemy on earth and while he's doing that promises to deliver them permanently from the enemy that they had fallen to over and over and over which was their false gods and he does that through the promise of a messiah let's read it again Micah 5 verses 1 through 6 now muster your troops O daughter of troops Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. That's Hezekiah that he's talking about. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. King Hezekiah, he's been struck by the Assyrians. But there is a deliverer coming from Bethlehem who will deliver Israel from its greatest enemies, who will deliver Israel from its own sin, from its own idolatry, from its own entrapment to an enemy that they could never seem to defeat themselves, right? Who would deliver Israel from its devotion to idols, who would deliver God's people from its devotion to things that lead to injustice. The whole point of Micah is not just to proclaim doom and judgment. The point of Micah is to get God's people to turn away from their sin and their idols and turn to God instead. That's why Micah's on the scene. And so Micah reveals to these hearers and to us by extension at least a few things about God that should turn us away from idols and cause us to want to trust God instead. Right, let's see just a few things in this passage. First, let's see that God acts to magnify His glory rather than our efforts. That's how He delivered Jerusalem from the siege. It was a miraculous delivery. It was through the work of an angel. Not through the efforts of King Hezekiah or anybody else. And ultimately, that's the same way that God delivers His people from our bondage to sin and things that we worship in his place. Right? In Micah 5, 2, 
God speaks and contrasts the littleness of the town of Bethlehem with the greatness of the Messiah that would come from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is scarcely worth counting among the clans of Judah, yet God chooses to bring the Messiah from Bethlehem. And one reason why is that the Messiah is of the lineage of David, and David was from Bethlehem. And that's certainly true, and it's emphasized in the New Testament in Matthew when King Herod is looking for where Jesus was born. But it misses the point of verse 2 if we stop there. The point of verse 2 is that Bethlehem is small, right? And God chooses something small and insignificant as the birthplace of the one that changes the course of history and eternity. Why? Because when God acts in this way, when God acts in this way, we can only boast in the efforts of God and not our own human efforts. Bethlehem means that God does not bestow the blessing of salvation on the basis of merit or achievement. He does not elect cities or people because of their worth, but because of his worth and his actions. Right? When God chooses, he chooses in a way that points us to him. Because our efforts are futile. And if God were to allow us to magnify ourselves rather than to magnify him and his glory, if God were to allow his people to pursue and love idols, God would be pointing us away from the only one who can truly save and the only one who can truly satisfy. God would be allowing us to worship that which is not worthy of worship. And so when Micah contrasts Bethlehem with the glory of the coming Messiah, right, he's showing God acting in his typical fashion which is to magnify himself so that we will turn towards him, right? This is even reflected at Jesus' birth in Bethlehem when the angels are singing glory to God in the highest. Micah is pointing us to God and to his glory because it's so much greater than anything that we could worship in God's place, right? Second, let's see this. God is more worthy than our idols Because God keeps his promises. God is more worthy than anything we could worship in his place. Because God keeps his promises. And our idols promise us all sorts of things that they will never deliver. Because they're liars. Any of God's people hearing Micah predict the coming of a Messiah out of Bethlehem would have probably immediately thought of King David and the coming king that's in the line of David, the future Messiah. Right? David was from Bethlehem. David was a king. David was a shepherd. And so with Micah's words here, the link between the coming Messiah and the link with King David is a link of promise. Right? What Micah is doing is reasserting the certainty of God's promise to David. 2 Samuel 7, God said this to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Right? The amazing thing about Micah 
is that he reasserts the certainty of God's promise, not at a time when Israel is coming to power, but at a time when Israel is weak and moving toward oblivion and doom and destruction. And in this case, you can see how firmly that Micah holds to God's promise because it gives him hope in the midst of despair. And Micah doesn't waver from that hope. He knew that God would keep his promise. He knew that the idols of Israel could never do what God was promising. They would never deliver on their promise. And so he's pointing people to the hope that comes only through God's promise. All right, and let's see this. God protects his people. Verses 4 and 5, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. God's purpose in sending the Messiah is not only to glorify himself, but also to shepherd and to protect his people. The reality is that we, we all need a shepherd. We all need a protector. You may not feel that need now in your own strength, but you will feel it keenly when life is crumbling around you like it was in Jerusalem. When you see no way out, when the hope that God promises does not feel real, when your idols have hurt you, when your idols have led you down the road to hurting others, when everything seems to be falling apart, we will all want that shepherd And God has promised that shepherd. And ultimately, God acted in history as a shepherd to protect his people. He died on a cross to protect his people from the certainty of wrath. And he arose from the grave to win a great victory that we could never win and to defeat our idols. Right? The hope that we possess because of the certainty of Christ's victory is a strong and beautiful, and eternal hope. And as God, as God's people, as believers, God calls us to live in hope, and therefore forbids us to live in its mirror image of despair. All of us will be acquainted with despair and grief in this life, with a deep sorrow that's borne by tragedy at some point. And we will all long for things to be made right again. You might feel that longing already. But for those who believe the promises of God, this longing finds itself accompanied by the certainty that God will make things right again. Because God has already acted in history through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We can all believe that justice is on its way to fruition. We can all believe that despair has already been defeated because of Jesus. And Micah 5 verses 1 through 6 is God offering the certainty of that deliverance to his people in the midst of some terrible circumstances. Right? It's the certainty of his hope, the certainty that he will care for his people. And so I think part of the call of Matthew chapter 5, I mean of Micah 5, verses 1 through 6 for us this morning is to live and to rest 
and to rejoice in the certainty of the hope that God has provided through Jesus. Micah 5 verses 1 through 6 points us directly to Jesus. It's my favorite thing about the minor prophets is that wherever you go in the minor prophets, there's always a direct line to Jesus. Micah 5 verses 1 through 6 is a direct line to the Messiah that is the assurance of the hope that God gives to his people. So let's live and rejoice and rest and celebrate the certainty of the hope that comes with Jesus. We're going to enter into a time of response. During this time of response, it's something we do every Sunday. And uh, it's something where we'll have the opportunity to worship through singing. The band's going to come back up and lead us in a few songs, give us an opportunity to worship that way. We have an opportunity to, to continue to worship by sitting where we are, maybe praying, maybe reflecting on the things that the Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts and minds this morning and what God would have us do or think differently about or change as a result of God's Word and His Holy Spirit. We have an opportunity to continue to worship by giving. There's a giving basket in the back if you're a part of Redemption Church where you can give your tithes and offerings and some instructions on how to give in other ways if need be. And this morning as well, we have an opportunity to continue to worship by taking communion. Every Sunday at Redemption, uh, we take communion. And we do it this way by coming down these side aisles, tearing off the bread, dipping it in the wine or juice, and so remembering the blood of Christ that was shed for us and the body of Christ that was given for us. Um, we're doing this. We visibly take communion together and do it this way as a community because we are proclaiming to one another that we believe the gospel when we do this, and we're proclaiming to one another that we're remembering the work of what Christ has done on our behalf. So if you're here, you're a follower of Christ, God gives you the freedom to do so. Please come and take communion, and so remember what Christ has done and proclaim our belief in the gospel. If that's not something you can do, then we would just encourage you to sit where you are, not because we want to point you out, because we don't want you to ask and come and do something that you don't believe or can't remember. But I'm going to pray for us, and we'll move on with that time of response. God, thank you for your word from Micah chapter 5. Thank you for this promise of hope. God, thank you for the way that you've delivered that promise of hope through our Savior, Jesus. God, I pray now, as we continue in this time of worship, as we continue to respond to your word, to the work of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that uh, Christ would continue to be lifted high, that we would be drawn to you, that we would be changed because of Christ. God, we ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.